There is a relatively large gap on what I want the brand to do for me and what I actually perceive they're doing for me. That is the biggest challenge that most of the industries we look at have trouble achieving. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 358. Today is Sunday, the 2nd of February, 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. And really, let me say how thankful, how grateful I am for your choosing to take the time out of your busy day to listen to this episode. I'd also like to give a shout out and thanks for putting up a review of the show to Roland W. It's a five star. This week's interview is with Maria Garrido. Maria is Senior Vice President at Vivendi, in charge of the brand marketing practice. She's also Global Chief Insights and Analytics Officer for the Havas Group, where she's champion of the Meaningful Brands Global Study. In this conversation with Maria, we discuss some of the important findings in that study, the impact of meaningfulness for brands, how to bring and measure it, what are the limits and challenges of bringing meaningfulness into a business, and how does Havas bring its own meaningfulness? A wonderful conversation. Maria Garrido, uh, pleasure to have you on the show. I have been a big fan of Avas's movement on meaningful brands. And there you are, I would say, the lead chief spokesperson of meaningfulness. Uh, so great to have you. Tell us, in your own words, Maria, who you are and what you do. Well, thank you very much for having me, first and foremost. Uh, it's always great to talk about meaningfulness beyond Havas, actually. Um, it's meaningful for the brands that we work for. Uh, what do I do? I have multiple hats in this company. As I one run, does. Uh, yes, one does. Uh, I run brand marketing at Vivendi, which is a holding company of Havas, where we have uh, entertainment companies like Canal Plus and Studio Canal, Universal Music, Game Launch, which does uh, mobile video games, uh, Daily Motion, all sorts of fun companies to work with. And then at Havas, I am the chief insights officer, and my primary responsibility is this study that is now in its 10th year that we've been running called Meaningful Brands. So I, I have to ask, uh, since we are at this in the Dial family household, uh, just enormous fans of Le Bureau des Légendes, the bureau done by a little company called Canal Plus, uh, do you have any elements of what you do in the meaningfulness studies that can seep back into the creation of new web series or television programs and all that? Well, one of the things that, uh, last week we did a big presentation on culture uh, and meaningfulness for brands goes beyond whatever benefits that they're driving for people. But we were sort of trying to tell brands, you know, traditional advertising really isn't working for you as effectively as it used to be. And you need to start being part of culture and, and promoting culture, not just an integral part of what's going on in society, but being part of it as well. And one of the ways to do that is to join hands, if you will, uh, with the you know TV, uh, the film and the series producers and the music industry who are at the, at the birthplace, if you will, um, of the culture that we generate in society. So th those teams are highly creative. They've got their ear to the ground on what's going on from a societal perspective. Everything from not just what's going on in the new formats of content for digital platforms, but also on culturally speaking, you know, what are people listening to uh, music wise? What kind of art are they interested in? What new color pantones are coming next year? All of that has an impact on the way we look at our 
art de vivre, as we would say in French, our, you know, our way of life and the culture that, that, that we absorb and that we are a part of. So we're trying to help the brands that we work with also be part uh, of that movement that we drive in the rest of our entertainment businesses. And the interesting crossover, let's say, or the word that sort of smacks me in the forehead is storytelling, because obviously that's what Ken Apries does. That's what entertainment industry often does. And then in, 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 in advertising, well, the business was all about moving products before. And now it's this thing called storytelling. And I just wonder how in Vivendi they're able to cross-pollinate and learn the technique of storytelling in 30-second spot, quote-unquote, versus uh-huh. a two-hour film. I have, a, I have a great example for you because we're not, we're not looking at storytelling anymore as a 30-second ad. It's not about pushing an ad message to somebody, but it's about co-creation. It's about you know, being, integrating the customer in the story itself. Um, I have one example. It's actually not from Havas. It's from another agency. But the pharmaceutical industry is an industry that has always struggled to engage in traditional advertising. Part of it is because they have so many regular re- right. regulatory well, restrictions print. that they're not allowed to. Well, plus at the yeah. end, you have to do that sort of 10-second scroll of all the silly things that, you know, I can't do this. Yeah. Cancers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but in most countries, they can't even get to that because they're not allowed to advertise in the traditional sense. So for me, because it's one of the more challenging industries, it's also one of the most interesting ones to try new forms of content. And, and very often in, in the conferences, I've used a case, two cases actually, one from Nicorette that a couple of years ago put together this thing called the One Breath Project, which were these three minute documentaries that showed average normal people achieving extraordinary things because they stopped smoking. Um, and they're really just awe-inspiring stories, you know, and, and they put them on on YouTube, they put them on on digital platforms. And the data we show we have shows that this kind of content is really relevant to people because in healthcare, people want content that's helpful and they want content that inspires them. Um, another case we had was Otravin, which is a nasal spray, you know, to uncongest your nose. They did this great activation for the, I think it was the Mumbai or the New Delhi. No, it might've been New Delhi. Which one's the more polluted? New Delhi. Hmm. Um, they, they had the New Delhi Marathon happening. So they went very early in the morning and sprayed their product throughout the entire city so that all the dirt and pollution particles could drop to the ground and make it easier for the marathon runners to breathe. What a great way to show the benefit of your product at an individual level and how you can amplify that into a collective benefit. Mm. Those are great new forms of content and new things that are coming out that brands can do outside of the traditional 30-second ad. Love that, Maria. So um, we're going to talk a lot about meaningfulness because that's really what drew me and, and really I wanted you to have on the show. So how, how do we, uh, I'd like to start is to ask you, what does meaningfulness mean for Maria Garrido? Oh boy. Um, I, it, it's on several levels, I think. Um, I'm going to start with the selfish level, if you will. Good. Well, that's um, a very good place me- to start. <laughs> the, the meaningful for me means that I'm doing things I enjoy. And that means both at work, at home, in my personal life, that everything I do, I try to do, is something that I'm going to enjoy and that, that I see a value in. Um, and then there's other levels. If it if I helps or supports or benefits my friends and family, it's even more meaningful. And then on a whole other level, and a big discussion I've been having with my kids lately, is that what do we do then that can help society as a whole? 
Um, so it's kind of like on three levels. First, is it enjoyable for me? Does it help and support my family and my friends? And then can I do something to contribute to society? Because if I'm helping, it makes me feel like I'm doing meaningful things. And how do you make choices about that? Because at some level, this is the type of problem that companies are faced. I could do endless amounts of things. My, com my company sells to 200 countries. I have communities that I could be touching so at very many levels. I have 100,000 employees. I could help them with all their family issues. And at some level, you could spend all your time doing that. So how do you articulate the ones that Maria is interested in as opposed to, no, 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 that's nice, but not for me? That's probably in a different place for everybody, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, to be honest, we, we all have to do things that aren't totally enjoyable. Sure. <laughs> of course. I really, I really love to cook. A lot of people hate to cook. For me, it's a very mindful therapeutic experience. And every weekend, if I've had a stressful week, I don't come out of the kitchen on Saturday. I'm just cranking away the recipes. <laughs> but other people find that a horrendous and not meaningful experience right. at all. So everybody's, everybody's definition of meaningful is slightly different. I think um, getting the balance right, you know, feeling, especially at work, if the week, if I go through the week, you know, and I do, and I go through, right, what am I grateful for this week? What do I, what am I proud that I achieved? If that list is bigger than the list of stupid things I had to do, I didn't really want to do, yeah. then I think I'm in a good place. That's it. So speaking of the Meaningfulness Project and, and this survey that you guys have been doing for something like 10 years, if I understand, sorry, mm -hmm. 10 years correctly. How do you define meaningfulness and how has it changed over the years, if it has? So if we're going to get a little bit mathematical here. So the way we've defined meaningful over the last 10 years is to look at basically three pillars of benefits that a brand, product, or service can bring to the customers or to the world. Um, the first pillar is really the functional approach, i.e., does the product or service deliver on what it says it's going to do? Okay. And for most people around the world, that is the barrier to entry. So that's the most important part of being meaningful. If, if, if the, you know, liquid dish cleaner says it's going to remove grease from my dishes, if it does a job, then it's already 40% of the way there, let's say to being meaningful. Um, culturally, that will be different. Industry wise, it will be different. Some industries are more rational than others, some countries are more rational. North America, Europe tend to have a higher weight on the functional benefits than they do on everything else. Um, and then there's two other pillars we look at are the personal benefits, what is the brand doing for me? And you know that'll be different. In healthcare, it's, it helps me feel my best, helps me feel healthy. Um, in consumer electronics, it's things like helps me connect with the people I care about or teaches me new skills. Um, if I only look at millennials for the joke, it helps me show off in almost every industry we look at. <laughs> Maybe except utilities. That's the only one where that doesn't pop up. Yeah, look at my um, electricity bill. Yay. Right. <laughs> um, and then the last pillar, which is by no means the least important. In fact, it's becoming more and more important over the last three years or so that we've been doing the study, is the collective benefits. What is the brand doing for society? And that used to be defined by things like... Um, is transparent, is ethical. And that's still there, but we're starting to say things like benefits my local economy, um, has sustainable practices, encourages diversity. Things that were not so high on the list, maybe three, four, five years ago, are starting to become more and more important for people. So that's actually 52 different attributes under those three pillars of functional, personal, and collective that we look at. And that's how we rank 
the definition of meaningful by culture and by by industry. So that, that that's really fascinating, Maria. And and where my mind is going as I listen to you is because you're talking about the the different markets, um, a higher weighting of functionality. I can't help but think that that is also a let's say a pretext for evaluating value for money. You can compare functionality. This one gives you 3.2 dB. This one gives you 3.6 dB or whatever the metric is. And then you equate that with, well, this is worth 100 bucks and the other one's 120 bucks. And, and in, the, in those sort of rational space, it seems most linked to money, at least the price sticker. Rebut or tell me I'm wrong. Well, it depends. It depends on the industry. So in consumer electronics, value for money is absolutely in those functional benefits. Uh, in retail, it's also there. And in markets like Spain, it's almost top of the list, um, the whole value for money. And I think if you've got a country who's coming out of a recent economic crisis, it's much more top of mind for people as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that'll shift over time. Uh, in other industries, like maybe healthcare, it doesn't really pop up as one of the top benefits people are looking for. They're more looking for, you know, good quality products, properly labeled products is really important in healthcare. So that it'll shift around a little bit, but some industries that is still a very important benefit for people. So you've been doing this at Avas for 10 years, and I was interested before talking about how it seeps back into Vivendi. How about for Avas? Because let's, and I'm not going to really, this is not a criticism, but in general, if you look at consultants, they tell you what to do, but they've never done it before. Yeah. Advertisers are selling products, but they're not making them. And, and, and in reality, a lot of this stuff, as you were mentioning at the outset is about culture. So I was just wondering how maybe this came about because of meaningfulness at Abbas, but where was the mirror or the, let's say the ping pong that happened between as these studies come, how Havas has been on a journey through it, with it, in it. Right. So, so I don't know if you saw any of the Havas uh, publications or our website, but at Havas, we say that we, may, we try to make a meaningful difference to brands, businesses, and, and people. Um, so if we dig into all three of those for the brands that we work with, we're really about cultivating um, their positive reputation, engaging with their customers, and driving positive change in society through the campaigns that we build. And, and I can give you a couple of examples, very recent ones, actually, that we've worked on. Um, we have a longstanding relationship with Lacoste, you know, the polos, sure. the sporting, sporting and, and clothing. And over the last year and a half, we've done a campaign with them that's won 50 awards, which is about um, driving awareness about endangered species. So they did a limited edition polo where they took the crocodile mm. off of their shirt and put a bunch of endangered species, and they sold very expensively, $183, I think, was each polo, and all of it was donated to the Union for Conservation of Nature to drive awareness. They premiered them at their fall fashion show. They were a massive hit, and they, this is a longstanding project at Lacoste to try and drive awareness of you know, the fate of the crocodile and now other endangered species uh, that the crocodile is in the same list. And so that's, that's a project that some of the teams have worked on. The probably the most last year, the one that got us the most um, press, if you will, was one that we did with Havas Australia for the tourism board of Palau. I don't know if you've ever I, been I there. Do, I, know, I know what 
where Palau is. You know yeah. what Palau is. So uh, there is a problem with tourism pollution, which I think is a problem in many places, not just in Palau. So they came up with a program that engages the tourists themselves. Uh, when they come in through customs in Palau, they have to sign a pledge that they're going to do their best to not leave plastic on the beaches, you know, to not pollute from every aspect when they're in the country. Um, we've won so many awards for that because it's about engaging the customer themselves in creating the solution and not just exposing them to an ad message. Um, and I have some, the most recent one I've got, which is just really amazing, is one that was done not for a brand, actually, it was our Habas Health and You teams with Universal Music, another member of our Vivendi family, actually built, they created a nail polish um, in Brazil, okay, um, where every 10 minutes there is a woman raped in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So this nail polish allows you to dip your finger into a drink and it will change color if there's a rape drug inside right. of your drink. Um, and they launched the product in the market. They put out a music video with one of the top performing pop artists of Brazil who educates and explains to people, you know, what's going on um, in the marketplace and, and how rape is affecting women and what they can do to protect themselves. That is just us being meaningful for, because we're trying to be meaningful. It wasn't a brand or client driven project. Um, so more and more, we're trying to do those kinds of initiatives, both with our clients and on our own, so that we're not just talking the talk, but we're walking the walk on the meaningful discourse. And so you said there's something like 50 or so criteria or questions that go into this meaningful uh, algorithm. Have these questions themselves been evolving over the years? I mean, I'm guessing anyway, someone new comes in, wants to look at them and, and, and checks them over and adds their touch. But how have those movements been reflective of the overall way of society? So the, the, the joke I made earlier about helps me show off, I don't think we had that in the study 10 years ago. <laughs> and in the world of Instagrammers and Snapchatters and TikTokers, um, we had to add that one in several years ago. And, and I, I mean, I'm being funny, but it really does show up quite often in, when I break it down to the millennial target group. The Generation Z that's coming behind is a little different. Um, the collective benefits, we are now actually reworking them for next year to start breaking down what does sustainability mean? It isn't just this big bucket of stuff. They're now people are much more educated and aware of the different things you can do for the planet that we're not just going to greenwash. So we're breaking that one down even further now. Um, what I said to you before that, you know, diversity wasn't anywhere near at the top of that list. And that's come more and more to the forefront of the things that people are asking for. The functional benefits have stayed pretty similar. There've been some, we've made some small adjustments over the years, but being the category leader, um, listening to your customers, uh, respects and listens is the one that keeps, especially in financial, for instance, in finance industry that pops up a lot. Um, those haven't changed much over the years, but, but the collective ones are shifting. So if I understand correctly, the questions, because I've not seen them, are oftentimes expressed as some sort of specific behavior or something observable as opposed to some sort of grandiose theme like, oh, I like my company to do good things for community. No, it's broken down. So it, for instance, if we look at the, the personal ones, it would be, uh, I, I, I perceive that this brand uh, makes me feel my best, or I perceive that this brand teaches me new skills. Uh, in the collective benefits is I perceive this brand is transparent. I perceive this brand promotes diversity. I perceive this brand uh, is trying, it benefits my local economy, um, et cetera, et cetera. So those, those, as I said, 
have now started to become more important in our study. So we're re-looking at them to see if we can't break them down to a bit more granular approach uh, when it comes to sustainability, for instance. Of course, amongst the many things that your study seems to clarionet, uh, it's been consistently increasing, it seems, over the years, is if your brand isn't meaningful, eight out of 10 people are going to say, I don't care, and let it disappear. So at some level, what is the amount of meaningfulness that allows you to be over the cusp of meaningfulness? I mean, like if I do, you know, 1% and I give that to, you know, wounded warriors, all right, well, that's nice, but that's 1%. The rest, 99% of the time, you're just a, a sucker for business. Right. So, so the number actually gets worse every year, Mentor. I hate every time I have to present the results, I have to start with that number and it just gets worse. So the global number this year is 77% of brands could disappear and nobody would care. It was 74% last year. And I'm frightened to see what happens next year. I hope at least it stabilizes. Um, the, the way to become more meaningful uh, if we look at, if I take all 1,800 brands in the study and I look at where they're performing relatively well versus the perception of where they should be and the perception of their performance in the eyes of the consumers, most brands do a pretty good job on the functional stuff. They, they check the boxes there. Where there are areas for improvement, and I'm going to go in order of, of least importance. So collective benefits have an average performance and definitely have room to improve, but there is a relatively large gap on what I want the brand to do for me and what I actually perceive they're doing for me. That is the biggest challenge that most of the industries we look at have trouble achieving. Like if, if I'm a finance brand and one of the benefits people want from me is teaches me new skills and I'm not delivering against that benefit, then I'm going to be one of those brands that could disappear and my customers wouldn't care. Um, so we, we have to break it down by industry at that level because those personal benefits become very unique to the sector that we're looking at. Where does customer service fit in as a part? I mean, customer experience, customer service, as opposed to the product works. So to your point about evolving, right? So listens and respects has been a functional benefit that we include in our study. Mm. It's particularly important in finance. It's important in utilities. And I believe as well in travel and hospitality. Um, we're going to break that down further this year and look at the user experience, the digital user experience, um, and dig a little deeper into how people perceive that brands are performing in that space. So if you are dealing, or you're, you're Maria, you go into a company and, they, and you say, well, you ought to be more meaningful. If you're not, you're going to disappear. How do people react? Uh, I, I think it's a good, you know, there's two things. I, I always preface that with another point because it's important that when, when I came onto this business, I'm an ex-consumer products person. I spent 20 years as a marketer in consumer products and I get to Havas and they give me the study and they go, isn't it warm and fuzzy? We're pushing meaningful brands. And I said, great, but what is that doing for my business? That's very nice, but what's it doing for my business? And we actually started to mathematically calculate the correlation between a meaning, a high meaningful performance and the typical KPIs that a marketer would look at. Everything from, you know, do, am I familiar with this brand? Do I consider this brand? Would I intend to purchase this brand? Would I repurchase? What are the loyalty aspects of a brand that's meaningful versus one that's not? And we've had to add over the years advocacy because now in the digital world we live in, what other people say on social media has an impact on the way that we make decisions about what we purchase. 
The nice thing for an agency is that 15 years ago, when your neighbor told you in his driveway that he bought a new Toyota and it's great, we had no way of tracking that. <laughs> Today we all do. Of a, all of a sudden, there's a there's a uh, you know a um, a cul-de-sac where there's 16 Toyotas. Yeah. If you had a, if you had a global map on that, perhaps you'd have it. But otherwise, no. <laughs> Uh, GPS sign, right? But yeah. but now we get now because people talk about that stuff on social media, we can actually do a better job of understanding how advocacy drives your business. So for for the brands that have high meaningfulness, almost in every industry we look at, there are significantly better scores on consideration, purchase intent, repurchase rates, all the way down to I'm willing to pay more for the product when I consider it meaningful versus one that I consider not meaningful. And interestingly, I get to understand some of the bottlenecks of that consumer journey with each sector because we'll see where the biggest jumps are. In telecom, the biggest jump is in repurchase. And we know that one of the biggest challenges for telecom is the churn rate. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a meaningful brand, my churn rate will significantly decrease if I'm delivering against those functional, those personal and the collective benefits that people want from me. So, so we really break it down to that granular level to try and help the client understand, yes, you can disappear, but if we help fix your issues and we compare you to your, your competitors in the industry, where are the areas where you can improve on your communication and also can improve on the kinds of content that you're delivering for your customers? So a lot of the arguments you present are extremely relevant metrics that we're used to hearing about, which include repurchase rate and churn. And, and those, those are numbers that they're going to be comfortable with. I'm wondering to what extent the correlation is mirrored in those type of numbers with the stock market performance that you talk about, where you say that the meaningful brands way outstrip the unmeaningful brands in their stock market performance. My point being, A, well, obviously it's doing better for business, but does better for business also does better for the stock market. But to what extent that the, does the, the rise in the stock market performance correlate with the types of things that the meaningfulness is bringing at a more micro level in terms of repurchase rates and Anyway, you can tell us more about the, the stock market performance because that, that's hugely interesting. And I'm sure that that's a powerful argument as well. Yeah, so this year, this year we run this analysis every year. The numbers change every year. Um, this year, our top 30 most meaningful brands in the study outperformed the stock market by 134%. So the way that we calculate that is because we run a study with 1,800 brands, some of them are global, some of them are local. Uh, we took the stocks 1,800. Um, index, which looks at 600 companies in North America, 600 companies in Europe, and 600 companies in Asia Pacific. Um, we took that index over the last 10 years, and then we take those top 30 brands and look at how they've performed from a stock market perspective over the last 10 years. And we look at the index, how do they compare one to the other? So the number this year is 134%. Um, one thing that I want to point out that's important um, and one of the learnings that we have every year in the study is it wasn't always the biggest brands that are the most meaningful. And we see that particularly in categories like automotive. Um, this year, not so much, but last year, I remember thinking, wow, Honda's really, really well ranked compared to other brands that are much bigger on a global scale. Um, in certain industries, we do see that kinds of, of, of evolutions. Land Rover is always incredibly well ranked and it's by far not the biggest automotive brand in the world, but they seem to be fulfilling those personal and those collective benefits that people want from them. Um, and one of the other things we find interesting is to see how certain categories evolve in the weight of the functional, the collective and personal. And I'll go back to automotive again. 
you know, eight years ago, two years into the study, automotive would have been a highly functionally driven category. Mm -hmm. And if I, if I plot it on a map and look at what it's done over the last eight years, thanks to the connectivity of cars, um, mobility uh, requests and expectations that people have today, you know, all of the sustainability questions, it's become a more balanced category. It's much more, yes, functional is important, but personal and collective have become a more, um, a stronger, have taken on a stronger role in how people define a meaningful automotive brand. Then I have food, which has done the opposite. Hmm. It used to be highly personal, highly collective. And we, I think this is my theory, okay? But we spend a lot of time talking about vitamin C fortified, calcium fortified, good for the digestive tract. Fat-free. Fat-free, sugar-free. And we forgot to say that the yogurt actually tastes kind of good because it's got fresh strawberries in it. So that's an interesting area where now food, because of all the sustainability questions and sustainable sourcing and responsible farming, now has to shift to be delivering better on the collective benefits that people expect from them. Well, I think the Impossible Burger seems to be doing a fairly good job on that. <laughs> cat. So one of the one of the zones, Maria, that I, I I zero in on is the relationship between meaningfulness, if you will, of the brand and for the employee. Uh, as I understand it, your survey tends to be, let's say, customer-centric or customer-focused. Is there a place for, and if not, elaborate on why not, for the employee's view of, let's say, I, I work for Land Rover or, because of course, like the consumer is not going to know if it's only a consumer-related one, but what's your what's your take on that side of things so that's actually come up we we've, we've had people who love our study and go can we run it internally with our employees um, and so we're now reworking that study to have an ad hoc version of it. We actually have a client in Florida who has asked to run it for their employees, but the benefits we're looking at won't be the same. Sure. You know, I mean, you'll, the promotes diversity, ethical, transparent, that'll still be there, but you know, um, I don't know. Uh, is customer service show. good? Well, customer. Yeah, is it, yeah, some of them will stay. Listens and respects might stay. Helps me show off might stay. Um, but there, there'll be some changes that will need to be made to those 52 attributes we look at. And we're now reworking that now so that we have an employee version of it um, to be able to run for people. Well, hopefully I will be able to find out more about that, Maria, because it's an area of particular interest to me because I feel that, the most important fan of your brand needs to be the employee. And as you mentioned before, not everything is always fun. You know, you, you do have stuff you got to do and, and what the boss is asking for and, you know, whatever. Yet, if you can increase the meaningfulness for the employee, then the delivery of the customer experience is going to go up because today's world, it's no longer through a 30 second spot, as we both have mentioned. And so that that delivery is happening by many more individual souls filling your halls. And if they don't feel like it's meaningfulness, then it's very hard to imagine how they're going to deliver a meaningful result to the customer. And, and recently, I don't know if you've seen Minter, I've seen a lot of research that actually shows when, when your employees are part of the purpose of the organization that actually drives better results overall for the company too. Less churn of employees, better performance overall on the business. So it, it makes intuitive sense. Um, it just takes companies a while to shift their culture in that direction, I think. I'm gonna have to guess, Maria, in any event, that as you present this study, and maybe you just correct me if I'm wrong, but there's more of a consultancy element to it. 
it's not just about you know doing a new form of advertising you need to shift mindsets in order to get into the space how do you deal with that it's getting easier because purpose is the buzzword of the year. Mm. I have to tell you, it's getting much easier. Three years ago, I re and I'm not going to mention which industry, but I remember going into clients and showing them the results that we gathered from the customers and they would contest everything on there. And I'd go, you know, it's not my opinion. I'm showing you on the slide. This is 350,000 people around the world and what they think about your brand. Um, and now because it's, you know, what are brands contributing to society? In fact, in France, we have a law, by the way, um, that's just come into effect or will at the beginning of next year, where, where companies are expected to explain to the government how they're contributing to society. So right now, every big French corporation is running around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to define their purpose. And now suddenly, those clients who three years ago told me this is hogwash, <laughs> wanna know how they can approach it so that they don't, because authenticity is super important. Well, that's it. You um, can't just say, say you're gonna do it or do it because it's trendy. You, you've gotta exactly. have some kind of meaningfulness uh, to your purpose that, that that resonates with you and, and as the CEO and for out, throughout the entire team because they're the ones that are going to deliver it. And this this is a tricky part because you sense that you know people are trying a lot of brands even just on a campaign level forget the you know the the core purpose of the organization are sometimes greenwashing themselves right. or trying to hijack the latest thing that's trending on Twitter in the hopes it's going to have a positive halo effect on their business. And sometimes it happens, but it's a very short term bump. And we get back to, you know, business as usual. After that, you have to do the homework of deconstructing the DNA of your brand, what it stands for, and what role you're going to play in society. And, and last week, I got into a little bit of trouble, because I, <laughs> I told a room full of banking CEOs that, you know, just reducing the paper that you're printing is great, but you really need to understand what your industry is expected to contribute to society. It may be another social cause that isn't necessarily save the planet by killing less trees. Don't, I'm not saying don't do it, check the box, but that might not be the message that you want to push out. There are other things you can be doing to contribute to society that aren't what's trending on Twitter right now. Well, as soon as you start checking the box, that's a pretty bad indicator. Uh, there last question for you, which uh, of course is is also elemental to me, but it's kind of like connecting dots as I listen to you, Maria. Empathy. I have seen a number of studies that show that companies that have higher degrees of empathy perform better in the stock market. You mentioned finance companies, and it makes me think of trustworthiness. And, and so the authenticity you know, seeps into trustworthiness. It's almost like if I had some sort of magic wand, I would say how meaningful, how empathic, and how trustworthy are you as a company? And that's the secret sauce. Yeah, that, that's true. I think empathy today, we would, in the way that we look at the study is, is really, does the brand share my values? And, and we know that 77% of the people we talk to want to buy from brands that share their values. And if I break it down and go into young people, they actually want brands to be part of promoting those values in society, not just share them, but push them out to right. the general It's going to be public. active. Yes, it has to be active. It's not just to talk, but show me what you're doing to promote those values that you share with me uh, between the brand and the person that they're trying to target. Um, we also see a huge demand for honesty. 
Um, people, 84% of consumers want brands to be honest about their commitments and their promises. Yet the feeling is that maybe 37% are perceived to be actually doing it the way people want them to. So but, there's still a big gap there. But that echoes transparency. You know, at the end of the day, being honest is just not only, I would say, a good way to be. If you're not, I'll find you out, little guy. You know, it's it's easier now to to dig behind and and uncover uh, dishonesty. Absolutely. Well, so um, thank you, Maria, for coming on the show. Great to chat with you. For anyone who's interested in digging in a little bit more, uh, getting hooked on meaningfulness, like I am with you, and I think you guys have clearly been uh, avant-garde in identifying this as a a really important way to run businesses. And I salute you for that. How can people find out more about meaningful, the meaningfulness project, follow you, track down what you say and, uh, and connect with you. So if they want to learn more about meaningful brands, they can go to www.meaningful-brands.com where we have published uh, the top line results for the global study as well as the industry top line results. If they want to find out more about our brand uh, or their brand specifically in certain markets, they can certainly contact me via LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. Maria Garrido, just Maria Garrido Havas, and you will find me. Um, and lots of the presentations that we've done at industry level are also on my LinkedIn page. Superlative. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 